0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 365th episode, we've got an episode for every day of the year now. Oh. Except on leap years.
1: Well, just give it a week. Yeah.
0: (laughs) This week we've got a bunch of news, mostly from SVP. We've got a ton of SVP news to cover. So there's going to be at least one more week, maybe more.
1: And if you're a patron, we will be recording the bonus content soon. Yeah. There was a lot to get through.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we've still been digesting all the dinosaur stuff and getting it in a format that's good for presentation.
1: We have listened to the non-dinosaur talks, but we do need to polish it a little.
0: Yeah, so this week we've got talks from all sorts of SVP topics, from dinosaur systematics to non-avian theropods to preparator
1: things. The Permo-Triassic ecosystem.
0: Yeah. So some of the ones that I think are the most interesting in my sessions are like a new Notosaur that was found, some new hadrosaurs. There's also a talk by Thomas Carr about T-Rex and what the private collection of those is like and how that might be impacting science.
1: And I'll be sharing stuff about new fossils that have been found and fossil sites. And in non-SVP news too, we have a couple Goodies, like a paper that recently came out on sauropod teeth and their feeding habits. Nice. There's always other news.
0: Yeah. I wonder if that's the same one as an SVP talk I have about sauropod teeth. We'll see.
1: And then there's also, of course, museum news, because museums are doing some great stuff. And dinosaur media. We have one item about Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous, because all the Jurassic World stuff is ramping up.
0: Yeah, it's getting busy. And of course, we also have a dinosaur of the day. Demondosaurus. And for our fun fact, I'm going to share what we now think is the world's longest dinosaur. Spoiler alert, it is a sauropod.
1: (laughs) You probably could have guessed.
0: Yeah. But before we get into that huge long list of things, (laughs) I want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we're going to thank two new patrons. We've got Talon and Scott. So thank you both very much for joining and helping us to keep the podcast running, especially it's around Thanksgiving time in the U.S. So
1: extra big thanks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're very thankful for all of our patrons
1: and all our listeners.
0: Yeah. But round, I got our shout outs. We've got Albertosaurus, Morgan Eklav, Quinn Pomeroy, TRX Dinosaurs, Bradley, Jackson Crawford, Pippa Ceratops, and Joey.
1: Again, Thank you so much. We really appreciate you and the support that you show our show. Of course, we can't do it without you. And we're very excited to continue to share all the amazing dinosaur news that comes out on a weekly basis. Yes. <laughs> so if you want to get in on this growing community, then, of course, you can join at patreon.com inodino.
0: Jumping into the SVP news because there's a lot to cover. I'm going to start it off with the non avian theropod session, which is a lot of people's favorites, especially anyone that likes T Rex or other big carnivores.
1: The Tyrannosaurs, yeah. Well,
0: there's a lot more than just Tyrannosaurs.
1: Oh, that's true. Carnosaurs, Allosaurs. I'm not going to be able to list them all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting to see how many you'd go through. (laughs) But even though I just said they're not all tyrannosaurs, a lot of the papers are about T-Rex and other tyrannosaurs, as is the case for our first paper. And I'm just going to start off with probably the most controversial poster in the session, maybe even within most of SVP. It was by Thomas Carr, entitled Tyrannosaurus Rex, an Endangered Species. And basically, he argues that T-Rex has a quote-unquote high cultural status, and because of that, They've become very popular with collectors.
1: Oh, and auctioners.
0: Yes. So Carr compared the number of T-Rex specimens that have been collected by public trusts, which are basically things like museums, universities, and government organizations, with the number that have been collected by commercial outfits, basically ones that are for sale and are private people going out and finding them on private land. So He gathered a list of 109 scientifically significant T. rex specimens, and of the known specimens, about 50% were collected by commercial outfits, although... He mentioned that that's likely an underestimate since the data is really hard to find for the number of privately collected specimens. But there was a good paper a couple years ago by Pete Larson where he listed a lot of the privately known specimens. And then some of them do pop up, like you said, when they get auctioned or just in the news in general. So these things are really expensive. So you can find information about them a lot of times. Of the specimens collected by commercial outfits, at least 84% of them end up in private collections. So this is sort of a new thing because it used to be that they weren't as valuable, but then basically after Sue got auctioned off, they became very valuable. And also that was also around the same time that Jurassic Park came out and everybody started thinking about, ooh, I could get a T-Rex. A T-Rex is so cool. The price went really high and a lot of museums can't afford to buy them anymore. And then things have just sort of spiraled into a lot of T-Rex specimens ending up in private collections. And in fact, when you look at the timeline of T-Rex specimens that have been found prior to Sue, every one of them that is known, at least in this list, were collected by public trusts and therefore ended up in museums. Whereas after Sue, it's mostly commercial collectors that are finding these and then obviously the vast majority of those end up in private collections. Although I will say the number of both increased really dramatically starting in the 90s. Hmm. So there's not a whole lot of data points before 1990, 1993 of T-Rex being found, period, in this data set. And there's a ton of them in the last 30 years. So even though, yes, there's way more that have gone into private collections, there's also way more that have gone into public collections as well. So I don't think this study necessarily resolved the question of, is private collecting increasing the amount of funding and increasing the amount of interest in t-rex and therefore potentially are we finding more t-rex specimens in the field or collecting them before they would have eroded away by natural causes or not i'm not sure
1: Mm -hmm. that's something that's hard to answer
0: it is really hard to answer yeah and it gets confounded by the fact that You'll dig deeper, the more valuable a specimen is. In fact, we were watching uh, one of those TV shows where they're following people looking for dinosaur fossils, and it's basically like, oh, that's just a hadrosaur. If I have to get an excavator out here and I only get $100,000 for it after all the prep work, it's not worth it to move 10 feet of rock from above it. But if it's a T-Rex, then all bets are off. Mm-hmm. If you can see it anywhere, there's there's a way to get it out, and you know, any effort will be done to do it. And so if that's the case, you know, it'd be a really long time before that thing would weather away and get destroyed by natural forces. Interestingly, if you focus on juveniles, because that's where a lot of the research is headed in terms of T-Rex, at least if you're interested in the question of whether or not (laughs) nanotyrannus should be considered valid, there are 10 juvenile T-Rex that are held in private collections. And if they were at museums, we would almost double our sample size. So we have 13 right now and we would have 23
1: Oh, that would help a lot.
0: Yeah, that would make a huge difference in understanding how T-Rex changed as it grew up. So that's sort of a big argument here is like, oh, we are actually losing a lot of scientific information. It's not just that we have, oh, we have 50 of these. So what's what does it matter if another 50 are in private collections? It's like, no, we only have 20, 23 and half of them are in private collections. So basically the conclusion is that in addition to stopping commercial trade of T Rex fossils. Carr concluded, quote, public trusts should not buy T-Rex fossils, which supports the scientifically damaging market, end quote, Hmm. which I thought was a pretty intense stance on it because a lot of museums are still buying fossils from collectors because it is an industry and people have to get paid for their work. But the argument here is that you're better off leaving the T-Rex out in the field available for a public collection to come along and find later than to have it go through like private hands basically which i don't know that's car's opinion on the matter i certainly wish that especially the scientifically significant individuals would end up in collections and really when you're talking about dinosaurs any skeletal elements basically should be in a museum if there's some teeth here and there that end up in private collections dinosaurs crew so many teeth and we're losing them constantly i don't see that as that big of a deal but really, you're talking about like a large portion of a T-Rex. Yeah, I think he's got a good point.
1: Yeah, and I guess the main point there is making it accessible for scientists to study.
0: Yes, which a lot of papers, including some of the biggest ones, only will publish a specimen if it is held in a public trust. So yeah, it's sort of a similar statement to say that it needs to be in a museum versus if we want to be able to study it. So moving on to a much smaller dinosaur, although still not that small. We've got Anzu Wiley, or Anzu Wiley-i, as it's sometimes pronounced. This was on a poster by Kyle Atkins-Weltman, and they were estimating the body mass of Anzu. So Anzu was originally informally described as the chicken from hell.
1: Mm -hmm. I remember. That was one of the first dinosaurs we talked about.
0: Yeah it's still how i always think of it as the chicken from hell it didn't end up getting the latinized version of chicken from hell which was like something they wanted to do but yeah it ended up being anzu which is like a daemon creature it's the largest known north american oviraptorosaur and it's estimated to weigh between 200 and 300 kilograms 440 to 660 pounds it's
1: so much bigger than a chicken
0: it is yeah so chicken from hell isn't really necessarily the best description of it but if you look at sort of its anatomy it is fairly chicken like that was the estimate in weight from the original paper so it was sort of a ballpark figure that wasn't the point of the paper they were describing the specimen but this poster was specifically intended to look at just how precisely we can figure out its mass and using a few different strategies. Oh, I should probably also mention it was about three meters or 10 feet long and about one and a half meters or five feet tall at the hips, but probably roughly ostrich height with its neck upright. Hmm. So much taller than a human where its mouth is.
1: (laughs) It would look pretty formidable to a human.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because in addition to being tall and long and weighing, you know, almost as much as say a tiger. It probably had feathers on its clawed arms and a relatively short tail. So that mass is pretty compact. It's not like stretched out on this long creature. And it had a bony crest on its head that made it look even taller and really cassowary like, I think. So if you had ever seen a cassowary and then you scale it up about 10 times, (laughs) give it bigger claws and a much bigger head and make it taller than a person. Yeah, it's it's formidable for sure. (laughs) So they used four different methods to estimate the body mass. I'm just going to go through them in increasing complexity. So the first one is linear regression, which is figuring out the mass based on the bone circumference. We talk about that all the time, especially with like big heavy animals. Then you can do a convex hull, which is basically you model the skeleton and then you shrink wrap the skeleton with polygons, then apply a factor for how thick tissue would have been on top of that. So it's sort of an estimate of like... This is how much meat we think was around the skeleton. It's Mm -hmm. basically what convex hull is. Then they did parametric volumetric estimation, which is basically digitally recreating the anatomy as accurately as possible. And that includes things like where the muscles are and all that sort of really in-depth detail. And another version of parametric volumetric, which included air sacs. So (laughs) in other words, there were areas that were a little bit lighter weight in the chest.
1: To give you a more accurate estimation probably
0: yes so from the heaviest one the heaviest calculation came from the regression from leg circumference that was about 272 kilograms plus or minus 70 kilograms it's pretty wide error margins on it which is about 600 pounds plus or minus 154
1: okay so we're still within the original estimate
0: yeah yes we are and still quite heavy and formidable (laughs) Mm mm-hmm the parametric volume estimate was about 252 kilograms plus or minus 28 or 556 pounds plus or minus 62 pounds. So about 20 kilograms lighter and the error margins are a lot smaller. Then on the parametric with air sacs. that just took nine kilograms or 20 pounds off the parametric volume. Basically everything about it is the same. It's just 20 pounds lighter when you have these air filled cavities in the chest that the other one was missing. And then the last one, the lightest one by far was the convex hull, which was 179 kilograms plus or minus 20 kilograms or 395 pounds plus or minus 44.
1: It's the only one that falls outside the original range.
0: It is. And I was surprised because I see convex hulls used all the time. And usually people are singing their praises and saying that they're better than the leg circumference type measurement. But I think you could argue that maybe the convex hull model they used just wasn't quite the right shape or they didn't add enough meat to it. And they said that it's possibly lighter because it's missing large muscles in the tail, hips, and legs. So maybe there was just a a large portion there where the meat was farther away from the bone (laughs) in a way that's hard to model using a convex hull. Hmm. So the authors consider the parametric with air sac model to be the best Unsurprisingly, it's the most complex. That would make Anzu about two hundred and forty-three kilograms, or five hundred and thirty-six pounds, which is about twice as heavy as an ostrich, or about three times as heavy as the average adult American, which is terrifying. Yeah, and it's also right in the middle of that original estimate range of two hundred to three hundred kilograms. So good job to the original authors.
1: He's gonna say you're talking to me. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. I did nothing.
0: (laughs) You did good. Getting a little bit smaller. I just realized a bunch of these talks, they're just getting progressively smaller and smaller.
1: (laughs) Well, it's easy to do when you start with T Rex.
0: It is. That's true. (laughs) Brooks Britt had a poster on a new Deinonychosaurian theropod, also known as a raptor. And it's the most complete raptor found in the must Touch It member of the Cedar Mountain Formation, which is in the Dinosaur National Monument in Utah. And this was collected actually way back in the 1970s. So saying it's new is more about when it's been presented than when it was found. It's been stored at Harvard for all this time. And it was actually found on top of a hill really close to the visitor center. That's at fun. Downs yeah, there's a picture of like the little, there's always a picture in these papers and posters about where things were found. And they show a map usually, and then there's a star and it's usually completely nondescript. In this one, it's just a picture of the visitor center basically from above and <laughs> like a couple hundred feet away on top of a hill is where it was found. Interestingly, even though that quarry hall is about 150 million years ago because it's Morrison Formation, This specimen is estimated to be about 104 million years ago. So like 50 million years later, one of those weird stratigraphic things that happens from time to time. Mm -hmm. And that makes it what they called mid-Cretaceous, which I like. Usually people don't talk about the middle of the Cretaceous, but it is pretty squarely in the middle. The find is pretty fragmentary. It's got about three quarters of a back vertebra, a partial femur, a partial tibia, and a toe bone. But that toe bone is actually possibly the most important bone in the whole thing. Why? It's not a claw, but it's the bone that has a really rounded end to it. It almost looks like a pulley. Hmm. And that's because they think it was capable of rotating a claw 200 degrees. Oh my gosh. It's probably the sickle claw on the other end of that bone. So, you know, like a, a raptor, they have those claws that they can retract and then stab down when the mood strikes. And the best guess is that it's a troodontid and if so it would make it unusually large for a troodontid but it's hard to say just how big because the partial femur we have is pretty big it's about 26 centimeters or 10 inches long but it is partial and it has four lags in it which means it's at least four years old but based on the spacing it appears it was probably still growing rapidly So really, (laughs) who
1: knows how large it got?
0: Yeah, we don't even really know how big this one is because we don't have a full femur. And then, yeah, we don't know how big it got because it's not a full grown individual. But it's really cool because we don't find a lot of raptors from the middle Cretaceous. Mm -hmm. And it is the largest or at least close to the largest known troodontid. Then real quick, we've got a poster from Chase Brownstein from an even smaller, potentially, theropod. This was, quote, the first small theropod cranial material from Appalachia. So if you're in the eastern U.S. or Canada, that's your neck of the woods. Specifically, the Ellisdale site in New Jersey, which is about an 80-million-year-old formation, so in the late Cretaceous. The dinosaur in question is probably a small dromaeosaurid, or raptor. They found fragments from the jaw and brain case, as well as a couple teeth, so it's much less complete even than the previous one. No toe bone. Nope. And they estimate that it was under a meter or three feet long. So it's a pretty small guy. It's possible that the brain case will help us understand how dinosaurs evolved into birds because it's an early dynamicosaur. And, you know, like I said, it's the first cranial material we have from Appalachia from a small theropod. So it could end up being really important, but it's still a little bit fragmentary. So we'll have to
1: see. You can learn a lot from fragments.
0: Yeah, that's true. If it's the right fragment. Mm-hmm. Really quickly, there was a paper by Eric Isas Mendy, which was about the Camaros basin in, in northern Spain. And that's the formation where Europa Titan and Demandosaurus were found. But the formation also includes thyreophorans, nithopods and theropods. But most of the remains are pretty fragmentary. The interesting thing about it is that for theropods, they mostly find isolated teeth, at least in the western part of the formation, but there have been some skeletal remains, including allosauroids, dromaeosaurids, and spinosaurids, and the spinosaurids are probably a baryonyx relative, so it's like canae, most likely, in that group. There are lots of spinosaurid fossils in the Camaros basin, and it is probably the most common medium to large theropod in the area so the poster had like a big silhouette of baryonyx on the background because basically the area was a lake and river system and we think there were just like tons of these baryonyx type spinosaurids all over the place Hmm. which sounds really cool hopefully there'll be some more specimens described soon they hinted at them and maybe we'll learn some more about spinosaurids from spain it's close to morocco it would make sense if we could if we can find a bunch of Morocco, maybe we can find a bunch of Spain. Mm-hmm. I think we may have talked briefly about this next discovery previously. It's by Jared Voris, and it was about Thanatotherist it was about Thanatotheristes degrutorum, which was from about 80 million years ago, and is the quote earliest known occurrence of a derived tyrannosaurine, i.e., the clade that contains the most recent common ancestor of Dyspletosaurus and Tyrannosaurus and all of its descendants. The interesting thing about Thanatothoristes is that it includes features of both Dyspletosaurus and Tyrannosaurus. So it really looks like a common ancestor type dinosaur. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is a common ancestor to either of them, but it, it shows you about that group.
1: Shows you how they're
0: linked. Yeah, exactly. And it also shows the connection between North American and Asian tyrannosaurs because it was found around 80 million years ago, and it sort of filled in a little bit of a gap on that migration, you could call it, back and forth. So the latest thinking as of this poster is that tyrannosaurs dispersed from North America to Asia about 80 million years ago, around the time that Thanatothoristes was around. And then there was a period of isolation for a while in the 70s of millions of years ago you know maybe around 75 and then finally there was a dispersal from asia back to north america about 67 million years ago for example including stuff like tarbosaurus on the asian side and t-rex on the u.s side so we're getting a better handle on how this tyrannosaur movement happened yeah svp also had a poster by Aline Gilardi and This was actually about digitizing the trackways in northeastern Brazil, which they called the Brazilian Outback. (laughs) I really enjoyed that nickname for it. It Gives you a good feel if you've ever been to the Australian Outback, Mm. what it might be like. The track sites are the same ones that were described in the book Dinosaur Tracks from Brazil by Giuseppe Leonardi, which was a recent sponsor of the show. And what they were doing is mostly using photogrammetry to collect all of the data they could from these fossil sites and then they digitized them and that allowed them to compare the tracks to other tracks from around the world just to see how similar they were but also to see how they weathered over time because leonardi has collected all this information that's in that book with all the pictures and all that kind of stuff so you can compare them and see how much they've basically weathered over time and how much information we've lost unfortunately in the process of digitizing all of these trackways, they also found some new tracks, including some of the largest tracks found in the area, which very roughly from the picture I saw looked like they might have been about a foot long. It's a pretty big foot. It is a
1: big <laughs> foot, although one foot. <laughs>
0: yeah, good one. <laughs> now this is just like the tips of the toes in how dinosaurs walk, too. Mm-hmm. They also found that some of the tracks have skin impressions and, quote-unquote, filamentous structures that they interpreted as feathers.
1: That's a lot of stuff with the tracks.
0: It is, yeah. You don't really hear about feather impressions from tracks. It's so cool. So I wonder what we'll be able to find out from those, you know, about how big of dinosaurs maybe had feathers, because there's always the question of, was T-Rex too big? Is that why maybe it didn't have feathers? But if we can find some really huge tracks that have feather impressions around them that appear that they might have been attached to the foot, That would be so cool. And then in addition to that, they found that many of the tracks have degraded significantly since they were first described. Oh, no. Yeah. And they recommended that, quote, tracks urgently need new or any conservation strategies, end quote, because apparently it's pretty popular as a tourist destination. Now, people will go there, they'll look at the tracks, there are tour guides and stuff, but there isn't really any concerted effort to maintain
1: them.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th, or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash DinoDig, you'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash DinoDig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70
0: billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. has found another hadrosaur in northeast Spain.
1: <laughs> if, if you're looking for hadrosaurs he's the one
0: he finds a lot of them yeah this one doesn't have an official name yet it's just called the Basturs poble lambiosaurine it's pretty obvious it's a lambiosaurine because we have part of its head crest it looks similar to cintaosaurus and Pararaptodon with the big sort of bun on top of its head (laughs) is how I always think of it there's a lot of those that have that they don't all have the big parasyrolophus crest sticking off the back I think it's more common to just have like a big knobby thing on the top this one might be from a juvenile which is really interesting since we're interested in the function of the crest and how or when why it developed and in fact the title of the paper starts the first remains of the cranial crest of a Lambiosaurian dinosaur from the latest Cretaceous of Europe. So it is another first if you want to specify it that way. Mm -hmm. Although the Lambiosaurians in Spain appear to be very similar to the Asian specimens like Cintausaurus, we might be able to combine some existing knowledge from the Asian Lambiosaurs and maybe, you know, get some sort of ontogenetic idea by looking at its really close relatives of adults there with this juvenile. So it could be really helpful figuring out what's going on with those crests. Yeah. So I probably should have mentioned that clearly was not about a theropod. (laughs) Nope. We've switched over to the dinosaur systematics session.
1: So now it can be any kind of dinosaur.
0: Literally any type. So I've got a titanosaur for you. Nice. Actually, several titanosaur finds. They're from the Galula Formation in Tanzania. And this was presented by Eric Gorsuch. They found three types of teeth. They categorize them as thin pencil-shaped teeth, the chunky chisel-shaped teeth, and then the D-shaped teeth.
1: Those are very different types of teeth.
0: They are. Although I will say I'm pretty sure in the past we've classified the D-shaped teeth as pencil-shaped teeth because they look pretty similar, especially if you don't have them next to each other. The main difference is that the D-shaped teeth are thicker and that they have wear patterns basically completely perpendicular to the wear patterns on what they're calling pencil shaped teeth because of this they think there was a lot of titanosaur diversity in tanzania in the cretaceous because you've got these very different teeth with different wear patterns
1: so they're eating different things and probably came from different dinosaurs
0: exactly yeah and we've we've found different groups that have these types of teeth so we have a pretty good idea about what types of dinosaurs and titanosaurs were there they also found some vertebrae and a scapula from what might be a Malawisaurus or a new titanosaur. And they also found more bones from Rukwa Titan. Hmm. We were just talking about Tanzania the other day. And it does seem that there is a lot to find. Oh, yeah. Next, there is a poster by John DeAngelo looking at Omesaurus and its multiple species. So Omesaurus is one of those where it's a genus... But there are a whole bunch of species mm-hmm. <laughs> within that genus. In fact, I think the author said that it's like the one of the most number of species of any sauropod <laughs> is Omasaurus. And so obviously someone like John needed to come along and look at it and figure out what's are these going real? on. <laughs> exactly. So the type specimen was not particularly complete. And since then, it's been lost. Oh,
1: that happens more often than you'd think.
0: You, yeah, it really does. So looking at the original description of that one that's been lost, which is Omasaurus junciensis, they compared it to the four other best-preserved species, which fortunately have not been lost. So there's O. tienfuensis, O. maoianus, O. jiaoai, and O. Pusiani, And they found that Omasaurus junciensis, the type specimen for the genus, is a Mementiosaurid, which is where it had been presumed to be and that it does appear to be a valid genus with the most obvious character being
1: the long neck
0: yeah <laughs> yeah its neck vertebrae are about three times as long as the back vertebrae hmm. so that's one of the ways that you can spot a mementosaurid. pretty easy way to spot the the vertebrae on momentosaurids are insane very much the giraffes of their time but in a more horizontal direction
1: and we're already wondering, how did sauropods go day-to-day with such long necks? And then you look at Mementosaurids, it's like, wow, that's yeah. what?
0: Ridiculous, <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, omesaurus maoianus is probably too different and shouldn't be considered omesaurus So the phylogenetic analyses show that it's not in the same group as the other Omasaurus species. It's often in, in a different category with other genera. So it probably needs a new genus name.
1: That tends to happen when there's a lot of species under one genera.
0: Yep. it's one of the main reasons why paleontologists usually don't put more than one species in one genus because you never know when we're going to find a new individual and it's going to split your nice genus with multiple species in half. Up next, we're returning to the question of Triceratops anagenesis. In other words, one species evolving directly into another.
1: Oh, that's, that's always a fun topic because you can almost never, well, I don't know if you can ever prove it.
0: True. Yeah. So there's there's always more research you can do on it, I suppose. This one was by Matthew Rollison. This time they're not talking about Triceratops and Taurosaurus, but instead two species of Triceratops, Triceratops horridus and Triceratops prorsus. Specifically the existing hypothesis is that T horridus is older than T process.
1: That's a good start.
0: Yeah, so they wanted to test it because that hypothesis was basically created from the Hell Creek formation, but right across the United States Canadian border, we've got the Frenchman formation and that hadn't been looked at there. So that's the Saskatchewan version of the late Hell Creek formation basically. So if T. hortus evolved into T. prorsus, then the Canadian triceratops finds should all be from T. prorsus because it's a little bit late and it lines up in time with when we think that T. hortus had evolved into T. prorsus. And I'm using T as an abbreviation for triceratops because it's not just for Tyrannosaurus. Anything (laughs) that starts with a T as a genus can get shortened to T.
1: Troodon. Yep. Therizinosaurus.
0: And a third one.
1: Titanosaurus.
0: There you go. You got it.
1: And the list goes on.
0: <laughs> I'll edit out the long pauses in between
1: your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.
0: <laughs> so, long story short, what they found is that all these Canadian specimens do, in fact, look more like T. process than T. hortus.
1: Oh, so it supports the hypothesis.
0: It does. So basically the anagenesis hypothesis may be true. We don't have any reason to think it isn't, I suppose, other than the fact that it's super hard to find. It would be quite a coincidence to find an anagenesis sequence, but it does have the most obvious feature of these t prorsus specimens, and that's a central nasal horn, which is larger on t prorsus than it is on t hortus. And in general, T-process also has a shorter frill, in case you were curious what the difference is between these Triceratops species. Speaking of Canadian finds, Michael Hudgens was looking one province over to the west from Saskatchewan in Alberta, and they found a Parksosaurus specimen. It's a small ornithopod from about 70 million years ago. It's only about two to three meters Or under 10 feet in length and probably under one meter or three feet tall, in case you need a little refresher on what Parksosaurus looks like. It's a bipedal herbivore. It looks a lot like some of the early Ornithischians that are, you know, 120 million years older, (laughs) but a lot of those early bipedal dinosaurs. This newly described specimen has a really nice pelvic girdle. So it's got the sacral vertebrae complete in the middle. It's got the upper hip bones on the sides. And then it's got the sacral ribs connecting them all together.
1: (laughs) Only when you talk about fossils can you say things like, that's got a really nice pelvic girdle.
0: (laughs) It really does. (laughs) It almost reminds me of like the carapace of a turtle or something, the way it like forms this whole structure. and Mm. It's really nice and symmetric. And yeah, it's pretty. The specimen was actually found back in 1972, but apparently no one had tried to identify unique features of it until now. But Michael did find a unique feature in the ischium and several other potential uh, tapomorphies oh. that support it being Parksosaurus, and maybe expanding a little bit of our knowledge about it too. Up next, we've got a poster from Noriyuki Wakimizu. It is a really interesting topic. It's the trigeminal nervous system in living archosaurs, also known as birds and crocodiles.
1: So expanding a little. Well, birds are dinosaurs.
0: Yeah, we're getting beyond just dinosaurs, talking about archosaurs. So the trigeminal nerve is the one that sends signals between the face and the brain. And we've talked about it quite a few times, especially with tyrannosaurs and spinosaurids. So we when we talk about those like holes on the face and how maybe like there was the T-Rex was a sensitive lover mm-hmm. <laughs> title of, of a little bit clickbaity because it, we think that there were these like neuro neural openings on the skull that show where the nerves were going through and you know maybe there was more sensitivity in those spots so what they're trying to do is see details of nerves in the skeletons By comparing neurovascular canals, which is really what those things are, you know, the canal is the part through the bone, whereas the trigeminal nerve is like the actual nerve itself. But if you take a CT scan of a living animal, you can actually see where that nerve is and then get some information about how the bone looks around it. And then hopefully when you look at an old extinct fossil where you can't see the nerve anymore, you can interpret what the nerve would have been like inside that canal. So what they did is they looked at a whole bunch of different birds and I think a few crocodiles and they found that the nerves run differently in different animals. But in crocodilians, they were actually pretty consistent. So basically what you have is the face is sort of split up into the jaw, the lower part and the upper part, which in dinosaurs, you know, in our head <laughs> there's way more above the jaw than below the jaw but in dinosaurs it's a little bit more even because their brain and everything is more at the back so that upper part is mostly the nasal passages and then you know the the maxilla and the palate for the teeth so what they have in crocodilians is the nerve basically run by the roots of the teeth more or less both in the lower jaw and the upper jaw in birds the nerves in the jaw look pretty similar but the nerves in the skull run closer to the palate sometimes like in crocodilians but other times they run higher near the top of the skull basically like along like the surface of the snout or you could think of like in a modern bird like at the top of the beak but other times they like switch halfway through <laughs> start going down by the top of the snout and then they sort of scoot down on one of the little connections between the <laughs> fenestrae and then go by the teeth. So it's sort of all over the place and it's different in lots of groups of birds. It's not like a consistent thing that you see within the same group. So it seems like they're changing if there is some unique anatomy that requires them to shift like a lot of dinosaurs do. They have all sorts of crazy anatomy. But in general, the ancestral condition is probably the one that's more like the crocodilian since that's what we see in the paleonaths and crocodilians and in a lot of the birds where it's basically by the roots of the teeth more or less is where those nerves run but i'm sure this will be useful in reconstructing what the nerves are like within the neurovascular canals in different dinosaurs mm-hmm. speaking of teeth Nathaniel Morley had a comparison of how the teeth in J-holosaurus changed as it grew up. J-holosaurus is a small bipedal herbivore from about 125 million years ago in northeast China, and we have enough specimens to split them into younger juveniles, older juveniles, and adults. (laughs) Oh,
1: that's good. That's rare.
0: Yeah, it is. But this is a... I mean, it's in J-Holosaurus, so you know it's in the j biota, Mm -hmm. And we have tons of these birds and bird-like dinosaurs from that place. It just was a great place for fossilization, apparently. They have what we usually would call leaf-shaped teeth. Basically, they're pointed in the middle and they have vertical ridges, which are technically denticles, but they're different than the denticles you see on something like a T-Rex, which is more of a serration. They found that the maxillary teeth... Didn't change much as they grew up. However, the premaxillary teeth in the very front of the mouth did seem to change a lot as they grew up.
1: Did that mean anything for their diets?
0: It might have meant something. They didn't suggest the different kinds of foods that juveniles versus adults might be eating. But the useful thing is that we can still use the characteristic change in shape to identify if premaxillary teeth are from a juvenile or an adult if we don't have another method.
1: Especially if you find a large specimen and then you find out, oh, that's still a juvenile.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Or if you just like don't have long bones that you can cut into and look for an EFS. Or if you're only finding teeth and you're just trying to figure out what's going on in this formation, if you're finding these premaxillary teeth, you might get some good information. But yeah, it's a good question. Like what was the dietary shift? Why did they need the different types of teeth at different ages? I don't know why I'm doing this one so late in the list, <laughs> but now I've got my new Notisorid.
1: Oh, I'm surprised you didn't start off with that one.
0: Yeah, I figured people wanted to hear about T-Rex, okay. so I put that in the beginning. But Patrick Wilson put in this really cool poster. It doesn't have a name yet other than TMDC 2011.3.
1: Okay, so maybe that's why you didn't bring it up first thing.
0: Yeah, it's not. It is likely to get a name as a new genus because it is very complete, but it doesn't have one yet. So yeah, maybe in the future when there's a paper that comes out (laughs) that describes it formally, then it'll be the first article. But TMDC, by the way, stands for the Montana Dinosaur Center, which is obviously where the fossil is housed. But it's from the Judith River Formation about 75 to 80 million years ago. And they say the specimen is, quote, approximately 70% complete, which it, is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot for most fossilized animals, let alone something that we don't find a whole lot of body or postcranial material from all that Think often. Think of all
1: the body armor they found.
0: They found so much. The poster dedicates quite a bit of its space to the osteoderms because they're laid out in a really beautiful arrangement where you can see the full shield shape of the back and it, it looks really cool with a little tiny osteoderm sort of at the tip where this tail <laughs> starts all the way up to the way bigger ones that you get near the shoulder and the neck is awesome looking and all the different shapes and the different keels on them and yeah it was really cool looking i think they had well over a hundred osteoderms wow Unfortunately, I don't think they found any of the head except for a couple of osteoderms that are very close to the back of the skull.
1: Mm -hmm. That's too bad. You learn a lot from the head.
0: Yeah, basically, nodosaurs and ankylosaurs are named based on their heads. So I'm wondering, even though it's 70% complete, it might not be enough to name a new genus because we just don't have that bone that we use to compare all of them to each other. They did find a lot of really great looking bones from the body though, including the scapulocoracoid, humerus, ulna, femur, tibia, and fibula. And that's enough to know that it's probably a close relative of Edmontonia and Denversaurus. They also said that of 91 possible characters, or basically measurements of the skull, they could only classify three of them. So that's really troubling if you're trying to name a new genus.
1: At least a new Notasaur.
0: Yeah. So I don't know if it's going to get a new name since it's missing the most important piece.
1: Oh, you changed your mind quickly. You started off saying it's probably going to get a name.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it still probably will get a new name, but I don't know if it'll be valid for that long. Mm. Or it could be that since it's such a complete individual, they might name it and then later on find a skull of something that matches with some of these postcranial elements, and then keep that previous name. But in general, the rule of thumb with ankylosaurs is you compare them based on their skulls. So this would be basically an exception to the rule because it's so complete, I guess. We'll see. See what the reviewers think. (laughs) And last but not least, for the dinosaur systematics talks, or I should say posters, there was Ryuji Takasaki, and they reported the first carithosaurus found outside of Canada it was actually found in Montana, which to a dinosaur, it's basically the same place. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it was actually found in 1989 and sold to a Japanese museum in 1991. But the museum was closed in 2014. And then the skeleton moved to the Okayama University of Science, where it is now. And that's where the researchers looked at it and Decided, oh, this is really cool. We should publish on it. <laughs> <laughs> the skeleton is missing most of the crest, but there are features on the nearby bones that show it's a carithosaurus hmm. Basically, you can see like the bones leading up to that big crest on the top of its head.
1: So they know there's something there.
0: Yes. And there are little bits and pieces, I think, of the crest. They also found, quote, virtually all major postcranial bones, end quote. Oh, good. Much like that notosaur, just like tons. But again, the thing we're most interested in is in the skull, and we're missing part of it. It's kind of a bummer. But it does sound like a really great specimen. Hopefully, it goes on display somewhere soon, if it isn't already.
1: At the very least, having most of the post elements means you know the size of it. Yeah. So moving on, we have a few more SVP talks and posters to share with you, starting with one to talk from the Permo-Triassic ecosystem session. Lucas Szapinski and others had a talk, and Lucas was the one who gave the talk about an upper Triassic vertebrate assemblage. This was in Poland, in the forgotten Kokuri locality. And I liked his quote in the beginning. He was talking about dinosaurs in Poland. He said, quote, Poland, to put it mildly, is not the most ideal place in the world to do such research. <laughs>
0: oh. Interesting.
1: Well, during the Mesozoic, what is now Poland, was mostly under sea level. So that makes sense. But there are several Triassic sites found with vertebrates, including several dinosaur candidates, as he put it. That includes Silosaurus, which is now thought to be a psilosaur, which is a sister group to dinosaurs, and smock Wawelski which was thought to be a theropod, but that's still being debated.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, I had heard it not being a theropod and not being a dinosaur, but eating a lot of bone.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the 20th century, Friedrich von Huene described specimens thought to be dinosaurs from Poland. That includes Sikinodon, which he thought was part of a titanosaur jaw with teeth, but later that was found to be fossilized wood. And the teeth were just drilling traces of bivalves. So not at all a dinosaur. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that one. (laughs) There's also velocipes that was half of the left fibula of a theropod. That's thought to have been destroyed during the Hamburg bombing during World War II. But it turned out that that fossil is in a museum archive.
0: Oh, nice. So there's still hope for some of these.
1: Yeah, it's at the University of Hamburg. And it turns out that is a theropod fossil. And similar to basal neotheropods, such as Dilophosaurus, Lilian sternus, and Dracoraptor, they found a label with more information on the origin of the fossil, and the team was able to excavate the area where it was found more. It's this forestry in Kokiri. They had to dig in a way so as not to damage the trees in the area, which made things very difficult. Oh, yeah. But they ended up finding something that resembled the rock fragment with the Hamburg specimen. So they knew they were in the right place. And they found several dozen bones, which included part of a carapace and pubis of a turtle. All the fragments that they found had diagnostic features, so they could identify them. They also collected some adasaurs, which are armored archosaurs, including isolated osteoderms and a maxilla. And all the bones found were isolated. They've since done more excavations and found more fossils, and they're hoping to publish on those soon.
0: Cool. That's quite a hopeful story. Mm -hmm. They found something that they thought was destroyed, and then they found the original location of it and got some more fossils from that spot while digging around tree roots. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing.
1: Moving on to the next session, which was the preparator session. The first talk that I want to share is From Christina Lutz and Kathy Lash. And it's about using old and new techniques to bring new life to old displays. And they work at the Peabody Museum. So, you know, there's a lot of renovations happening there right now. Mm -hmm. So, George Peabody, because of O.C. Marsh, founded the first Peabody Museum of Yale, which opened in 1876. The original building was demolished in 1917. There's too many fossils to house. So, they got rid of it. But because of the war, it took a while to build a new building until 1925.
0: That's an interesting strategy. You demolish the old building before you have a new building to put it in. Yeah. Then
1: from 1942 to 1947, Salinger painted that famous mural. They renovated the interior in the 1960s. They had the windows and skylights sealed. And then now, of course, it's currently being renovated again. And that includes all kinds of mounts, plaque mounts, in situ mounts, other kinds of mounts. A lot of the specimens were displayed in frames, and when the rocks were removed, it turns out that the bases of those frames were, as they put it, scary. (laughs) (laughs) Like
0: not the most stable things? Yes.
1: They found epoxy fabric, some still wet oil-based paint found.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's some staying power. Yeah. It to stay wet for that long.
1: Uh, Yeah, I can only imagine and some of the fossils were missing because they were taken from the specimen for research. So there was a lot of research and tracking down of specimens. And in some cases, they did 3D prints to recreate it. Cool. The in-situ mounts had a lot of cracking and crumbling. So they had to create these foam matrices and there's painted parts that aren't real bones. So it's obvious what's real and what's been replaced when the museum opens people can tell
0: i love it when they do that so you can see the difference between the fossil and the replica and you know what's been interpolated from the existing bones
1: yeah so that renovation started in 2020 the peabody will reopen in 2024 they'll have three floors of new exhibits and 50 percent more space awesome And just to add on to that, this wasn't on their poster, but it was a news item that came out recently. When the Yale Peabody Museum reopens in early 2024, it's going to be free forever to visitors.
0: Ooh, like the Smithsonian and a lot of other public museums around the world.
1: Yeah. And that museum has over 14 million objects and specimens. Cool. And you'll be able to see the first Brontosaurus, Stegosaurus, and Triceratops specimens found. And of course, Salinger's The Age of Reptiles mural. In the redesigned Great Hall of Dinosaurs.
0: We're definitely going to have to go.
1: Oh, yeah. The next talk was by Eric Lund from the North Carolina Museum of Sciences, and they found a Triceratops skull recently in the Hell Creek Formation. And they decided this is a great opportunity to engage with public outreach, and we can show the discovery phase all the way through all the phases for fossils <laughs> <laughs>
0: the preparation and the mount and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So they've shared. All their aspects of the fossil journey from the field, you know, the excavating, putting it into the jacket, all that stuff, to getting it to the museum and beyond. Mostly, they've shared it through social media. This skull was found in 2016. They used horses to flip over the jacket, which weighed between seven and 8,000 pounds. Oof. They trimmed down the jacket to about 5,000 pounds, and then it was airlifted by helicopter. So, they used all kinds of methods here.
0: Yeah. From a very old-fashioned to basically state-of-the-art.
1: Yeah. And they shared images and videos. Then they loaded it onto a trailer, drove it to the museum, and then unloaded it with a boom lift because, again, it's very heavy. And they opened the jacket in a place where the public could watch and people who were there could talk to lab volunteers and staff paleontologists at a table nearby. And they live-streamed the event so that a lot of people could tune in. Now the jacket's been taken to the Open Paleontology Research Lab The preparation started in 2019. It's going to take a few years. And they've been keeping people updated through Twitter and other social media. And there's a time lapse of the preparation, which will be shared once it's done. Cool. It's a time lapse of a few years. I love time lapses. (laughs) Yeah. And they also live stream their lab work in the museum and to other people around the world. It's about one hour each time they do it. It includes Q&A. And they said all their team members have to post on social media so everybody's involved in sharing this <laughs> fossils journey Cool the next talk was by Joseph Gronk and he talked about the holotype and only known specimen of forestry which was found in Madagascar It was collected in July 2010 in a theropod dominated bone bed there were over a thousand specimens collected there between 2005
0: and 2012. Wow that is a lot
1: yeah. So they call this specimen Leva's mystery skull. And they did a scan before preparing to see what's inside the jacket. Then they prepared the fossil and then they did a digital reconstruction and printed life-size and three-times life-size models (laughs) and released the 3D models at the time of publication. And they did these mechanical and digital preparations and then two digital reconstruction models. They said taphonomic and anatomical printed their prototypes, and then created animation sequences to visualize the reconstruction.
0: That's very impressive.
1: Yeah. As a quick recap, Lee is an anti-ornithine bird that was about crow-sized, had a long beak, which was uh, similar to a toucan, the beak. Yeah,
0: similar to me, with a big old nose.
1: <laughs> I guess. I wouldn't call your nose a beak.
0: I think it's a little toucanny. <laughs> that explains why they... Uh, printed it out in three times scale Mm -hmm. i'm used to like t-rex prints where they it's more like one-tenth scale but you don't need to
1: you don't need to enlarge a t-rex but for a bird yes yeah then we've got eric gorsak who did a poster and it was a case study of uh, an egyptian titanosaurian sauropod and talked about how fossil preservation can be an issue because you know things break sometimes fossils get crushed there's deformation that happens sometime between burial and when the fossil gets excavated. There's also compression, which can, quote, obscure key anatomical features. Basically, the fossils get shortened or there's a reduction in volume. But you can retro-deform a fossil with 3D computer models.
0: <laughs> retro-deform. Yeah. De-deform. Exactly.
1: <laughs> And that's using CT scans or photogrammetry. So they did this for this partial sauropod dinosaur that was found in the Campanian cargo oasis in Egypt. It was found back in 1977. And the fossils include dorsal vertebrae and parts from the appendicular girdles. They said most had been compressed taphonomically. So at some point, while it was getting fossilized between that burial and excavation period. They made 3D models from CT scans, and they were able to find out more details about each fossil, and they showed the fossils to be comparable to other titanosaurs. So now the specimen's being prepared for formal publication. Yay, sauropods.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's cool to de-deform it like that. I saw another one where they had a skull, and basically half of it was deformed. So digitally, they cut it in half. And then mirror imaged the good half <laughs> over <laughs> to the other side, and then had a better model to work from.
1: That's probably the easiest way to do it.
0: If you, yeah, because you know all living tetrapods are bilaterally symmetric. So if you have one side that's not smushed, you mm-hmm. can use it. But a lot of times the whole thing is smushed, and then you can't use that trick.
1: Then you got to find other ways to de retroform.
0: To retro deform.
1: Retro deform, right? Other way around.
0: De retroform, yeah. <laughs>
1: Now last for the preparators, posters, uh, Mireia Ferraventura talked about this theropod tooth that was found in La Rioja, Spain, possibly Carcharodontosauridae, and they found it half extracted from the matrix. Now this tooth has some cracks, so they decided to temporarily protect it while they were getting it out of the rock. And they used this thing called cyclododecane. It's waxy and it disappears after a few days or weeks. So that's good for temporarily protecting a fossil. And it can be applied undissolved using heat or dissolved in an organic solvent. So they did all different testing for how much it should be dissolved or undissolved, what works best. And they ended up dissolving it at 40 and 60 percent. And then they added an extra layer of protection around it with Japanese paper, which is very thin paper, Sort of like origami paper or something? I think it's thinner. Cool. So they think that that worked, and they did do a detailed visual analysis after, but they didn't say the results of that. But I didn't know you could uh, do this kind of temporary protection while you're excavating fossils.
0: Yeah, that's nice. I hope it doesn't mess too much with the chemistry, (laughs) because sometimes, you know, you lose a little bit of your chemical testing ability when you code it and stuff, but...
1: It sounded like this didn't, and then they did some testing first on stone surfaces to make sure.
0: Nice. The less destructive, the better when when you have one-of-a-kind specimens you're dealing with.
1: That wraps up all the SVP talks for this episode, and we'll just get into some of the non-SVP news from the week. (laughs)
0: It's been a busy week.
1: It always is. I'll start with the... I'll just read the name of the paper because I like it. Exceptionally simple, rapidly replaced teeth in sauropod dinosaurs demonstrate a novel evolutionary strategy for herbivory in late Jurassic ecosystems.
0: You just like that the sauropods are described as novel.
1: And exceptional.
0: <laughs> Exceptionally simple.
1: Well. <laughs> still exceptional. <laughs> this was written by Keegan Maelstrom and others and published in BMC Ecology and Evolution. Now, herbivores usually have complex teeth to grind plants, but not so in sauropods. Exceptionally simple, yep. some might say.
0: It reminds me of the, the Simpsons where someone says, Homer, stop eating like a pig. And so Lenny goes, no, I think pigs tend to chew. I think he eats more like a duck. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically the sauropod strategy. Swallow everything whole.
1: <laughs> well, in this paper, they found that more complex teeth took longer to replace, which makes sense, and that tooth complexity was linked to tooth replacement in sauropods, so the less complex teeth were replaced more often. They used CT and micro-CT scanning and made 3D models of late Jurassic dinosaurs in western North America. That includes Apatosaurus, Allosaurus, Nanosaurus, so it's not just sauropods here, And they found that carnivores had sharp, simple teeth, as expected, and Ornithischians had more complex teeth, similar to current herbivores, extant herbivores. But sauropods had simple teeth, and that's unlike any other known herbivores, because usually there's cusps and grinding surfaces.
0: At least the sauropods they're looking at, because there were some sauropods that had the ability to do a little bit of processing in the mouth.
1: This is late Jurassic dinosaurs in Western North America, specifically.
0: Gotcha. So you're talking about Diplodocids.
1: Right. So Diplodocoids, like Apatosaurus and Diplodocus, replaced their simple teeth. They were narrow and peg-leg very quickly, which may have meant that they ate different types of plants than other sauropods that had more complex teeth, like Chimerosaurus. Hmm. And just for reference, Diplodocus replaced its teeth about every 35 days, and camarasaurus replaced its teeth about every 62 days.
0: Yeah, I think Diplodocus, or at least... Dinosaurs like Diplodocus were the fastest. That like once a month Mm -hmm. rate of tooth replacement is just crazy. (laughs) I
1: know. So the study said that narrow peg-like teeth evolved independently in more than one sauropod lineage. And after Diplodocids disappeared in the early Cretaceous, macronarians, the sauropods, started developing teeth similar to Diplodocids. So some titanosaurs like And arctosaurus and nemectosaurus had very narrow tooth crowns, and these sauropods also replaced more teeth. They're saying smaller teeth would have weighed less than more complex teeth, which would also help with keeping those sauropod skulls light. And replacing teeth quickly meant that sauropods could eat food that other dinosaurs either couldn't or wouldn't want to eat like. Really tough plants.
0: <laughs> like they're just eating sticks and branches <laughs> and stuff, breaking teeth all the time. It but it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah.
1: They'll get a new one.
0: Just shovel it all down as fast as possible. If you get a bunch <laughs> of garbage with it, breaking your teeth, it doesn't matter.
1: <laughs> okay, there's that novel strategy. <laughs> it's very novel.
0: <laughs> well, I would say replacing teeth faster than I replace my toothbrush is pretty novel.
1: Mm-hmm. Then so other news. In Huesca, Spain, 30 titanosaur eggs have been found in a two-ton rock, and they think there could be more, up to 70 eggs.
0: That's a very heavy rock for only 30 eggs.
1: Well, maybe there's 70 eggs.
0: Oh, I (laughs) suppose. I guess that tells you that it's not fully excavated at this point.
1: Yeah. So these eggs are from the Cretaceous about 66 million years ago. The nests were excavated last year in 2020. took five people eight hours a day for 50 days to excavate this rock, wow! they had to have the help of a bulldozer. And they're saying the two-ton rock and 10 smaller rocks from the site are going to be displayed eventually at the future laboratory museum, which is opening next spring. So visitors will be able to see it being prepared. Oh, very cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Everybody will find out together how many eggs there really are in that block.
1: Yeah. In Divinopolis, Brazil, paleontologists have found what they're calling a dinosaur cemetery where you know, just a lot of fossils been found. There. There's a lot of titanosaur fossils specifically. They found a femur first. And they found these fossils when they were building a railway in June. They had to survey the area first and came across some dinosaurs. <laughs> so now they're analyzing the material.
0: Excellent. I think you could describe most dinosaur fossils as dinosaur cemeteries.
1: Yeah, but when you get a lot of them together. That's true. In the U.S. in Colorado, there was flooding earlier this year on the Comanche National Grassland that covered the dinosaur tracks there in six inches of mud. But since then, the track site has been clean, so that's good news. It's the Pickett Wire Canyonlands Dinosaur Track Site, which is apparently the largest dinosaur track site in North America. They have more than 1,900 prints and 130 trackways.
0: That's the one we talked about with Bruce Schumacher, all the sauropods.
1: yeah. But it's a hard one to get to because it takes an 11-mile round-trip hike.
0: Yeah, I don't think I'm up for that these days. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of walking.
1: We got a quick update on Ubi Rajara. Uh, four scientists wrote a letter published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution about the moral and legal imperative to return illegally exported fossils. Unfortunately, I can't tell you more because it was behind a paywall. We don't have access to that at this time. But... Just goes to show there's still a lot happening with this fossil.
0: That is a controversial one. Mm-hmm. And whether or not exporting it was illegal. Seems like most people think it was illegal. Or at least that it should be returned.
1: I'm sure we'll see it continue to unfold in the coming months. Now onto Dinosaur Media. The streaming service Peacock is making a documentary on the rise and fall of Barney the dinosaur. What? <laughs> Yeah.
0: Like the popularity of the show?
1: I think so. It's going to be a three-part documentary. They're going to have interviews and archival footage. And the show, I didn't realize it ran for two decades. It ended in 2010. Huh.
0: It was bad the whole time.
1: Some people really loved it.
0: I mean, I was a child. I was in the target audience for at least some of that two decades. I think
1: you were a little bit on the old side.
0: Maybe. Maybe. But I would have only been a couple years old when it started, and I never liked it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You wanted a different kind of dinosaur.
0: I guess. Yeah. I like the realistic dinosaurs, which Barney is not.
1: No. So then in the more realistic than Barney dinosaur category, we've got Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous Season 4 coming out December 3rd. Nice. And there's a new trailer, and you can see the kids getting chased by Spinosaurus. In a desert, so they're not showing Spinosaurus swimming or being very aquatic.
0: Yeah, they're really leaning into the Spinosaurus's terrestrial side of the argument there.
1: hmm Unless maybe it goes in the water later. Who knows?
0: Very versatile, maybe.
1: It also, Gary, you mentioned this. It seemed kind of Westworld-ish because yeah, there's different lands.
0: Yeah, because there was like a saber-toothed cat mm-hmm. that came flying out at some point, And I was thinking like the different... Potential regions of an island, if they're still even on an island, and how they're mixing up all these different prehistoric times together.
1: Mm -hmm. So, apparently, they're on an island we haven't seen yet in Jurassic canon. So, that'll give them a lot of leeway in telling the story. Mm. And the season is supposed to inform things that happen in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and the upcoming Jurassic World Dominion.
0: Ooh, it's a little, it's going to fill in the gaps.
1: Yeah, in the trailer, you can see the kids watching people lead the T-Rex away, I think when they're loading some of the dinosaurs. Oh,
0: gotcha. For Fallen Kingdom. Cool.
1: So then, yeah, I'm sure there'll be hints about what to expect.
0: It's amazing in that storyline that nobody is looking for these kids. I know. (laughs) What is going on?
1: Because they talk about, a lot of them have good relationships with their parents.
0: Some of them are super rich. Yeah. (laughs) What is happening? (laughs) <laughs> and then like they watch the T Rex get loaded with like all these people and they just somehow don't end up going along.
1: <laughs> They're on their own adventure. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Demondosaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King via Patreon and Discord, so thanks! It was a Ribacosaurid sauropod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Burgos, Spain, in the Castrillo de la Reina formation. As a quick reminder, Ribacosaurids are part of the family Diplodocidae, but they're considered to be more basal than Diplodocus. Demondosaurus looked like other sauropods. It had a large body, columnar legs, long tail, and a long, thick neck. It also had simple neural spines. It was medium size, estimated to be between 33 to 39 feet or 10 to 12 meters long.
0: Yeah, it's not so big.
1: Yeah. And it was herbivorous. It had pencil-type elongated slender teeth that were mostly straight with a slight curve. It was named by Fidel Torcida Fernandez Baldor and others in 2011. And the type and only species is Demondosaurus darwini. And that genus name means lizard. It refers to the Sierra de la Demanda, the mountain chain where the type specimen was found, and the species name is in honor of Charles Darwin. They found an incomplete but associated skeleton, so cranial and post-cranial fossils. The fossils were found in the Tanadas de los Vallejos II quarry, near the town of Salas de los Infantes. And this quarry was found in 1999 during prospection work. The fossils were excavated in 2002-2004. to 2004. They found about 810 skeletal elements, most of them from a single Robocosaurid individual. Now these fossils, they were disarticulated and close to each other. They also found fossils from a small ornithopod, two spinosaurids, and a crocodile tooth. The holotype of Demondosaurus includes premaxillae, left dentary, six teeth, vertebrae, ribs, ischia, and left femur. It had nine atapomorphies in the teeth and vertebrae, which is what makes it unique. That includes some tooth ornamentation and pneumatic cavities. Demondosaurus is a sister group of Nigerosaurus. The premaxilla is taller than it is wide, also known as subrectangular, and that's similar to Nigerosaurus. And Demondosaurus helps show that dinosaurs, sometimes in the early Cretaceous, move between Laurasia and Gondwana. Rabacosaurids have been found on both continents, and that may mean that there was a land connection at the end of the early Cretaceous. This is first based on the description of the Rabacosaurid Histriosaurus in 1999 that was found on the Istrian Peninsula, which is shared by Croatia, Slovenia, and Italy. McKenna in 1973 said that this was an example of dispersal through quote-unquote Noah's Ark. So part of Gondwana, now North Africa, split off and collided with the south of Laurasia, now Europe, and that became part of Laurasia on the Apulian Plate. Now this migration by the Apulian Plate may have been the starting point for the Apulian route that happened at the end of the Cretaceous but may have also been used in the early Cretaceous. This route might not have been a land corridor, but the islands on the route may have been close enough that some animals could move between them, Hmm. like Demondosaurus, or a close ancestor of Demondosaurus.
0: Wading through very deep water or doing a little bit of swimming. Yeah. Or occasional wading and then getting blown off course by a storm or something.
1: thinking literal island hopping.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Hopping. (laughs) If It could really stretch out its legs. So as promised earlier... Our fun fact is about the world's longest dinosaur. This was shared in a poster, but it also included a really great short video by Brian Curtis.
1: This was at SVP?
0: Yes. I'll just get straight to the point. The dinosaur, which is reportedly the world's longest dinosaur, is Supersaurus.
1: Fitting name.
0: It is. I know you have talked about Supersaurus before in the past.
1: Yes, in episode 238, it was the dinosaur of the day.
0: Thank you. It was actually named way back in 1985. And the researchers reviewed quarry maps and included some more neck vertebrae from previous descriptions. And these neck vertebrae are crazy long. They're mm. like Mementosaurus type long. Mm. Many of them appear to be at least a meter or three feet long with at least one being, quote, nearly two meters long. Wow. Which is like as tall as people get Mm -hmm. usually. just a single neck vertebra. So you end up with a neck that's well over 10 meters or 33 feet. (laughs) How did it
1: hold its neck up?
0: (laughs) It's really impressive. (laughs) They think it was a diplodocid, so its tail is presumed to be very long and thin. And the tail vertebrae, that were found also seem to back that up. They look pretty diplodocid-like. Some of the tail vertebrae previously have been misidentified as a potosaurus because supersaurus has a tail. The way they described it is that it starts out like barosaurus near the base of the tail, mm-hmm. and then as you get farther back, it looks more like an apatosaurus tail. Hmm. So I think you could accidentally confuse part of the skeleton as a potasaurus and part of it as barosaurus if you didn't realize it was from one individual.
1: But it's actually Supersaurus, which is super long.
0: Yep. Conservatively, they say, they estimated Supersaurus to be 39 meters or 128 feet long, but they think it was likely about 42 meters or 138 feet long. Oh, wow. So to put that into perspective, Patagotitan, which is...
1: 122 feet.
0: You just know that off the top of your head? It's a
1: sauropod, yeah.
0: (laughs) That one's often reported to be the longest sauropod is it? we have a more complete composite at least of patagotitan than we do of supersaurus but yeah the original estimate was 40 meters or 131 feet but it has shrunk depending on other estimates although some of those bones are from juveniles but i mean that's always the case you know we never know if we're finding the largest ever individual Mm -hmm. so we can only go based on what the largest individual of a species we've found is and then the other one that i think Frequently gets cited as the longest ever dinosaur is Maripunisaurus, which was previously called Amphicelius fragilimus. That's the one that had that one back vertebra that got lost, but it was crazy huge and everyone thought must be the biggest dinosaur ever, at least for a while. But the most recent estimates of Maripunisaurus put it at about 35 meters or 115 feet long. So, yes, Supersaurus is significantly longer than both of those. I've never heard of any dinosaur breaking 40 meters before. No, That is nuts. 42 meters, 138 feet. There were all sorts of comparisons to, you know, like if it was on a football field, you'd only need about two of them to cover the whole thing and how many school buses worth it is and all that. If you've
1: ever been to the American Museum of Natural History or seen pictures of it, that Patagotitan at 122 feet does not fit in the room that (laughs) it's in.
0: Yeah. And this is, you know, another 10, 15 feet longer than that. At some point as a human, The scale of these things is it's all just like building sized and it's all just way too big and you wouldn't want to be anywhere near it if it was walking around. But it is always interesting to know what the single biggest one is. This new reconstruction was partly made possible by finding a new specimen, which will be at the Grandview Museum of Natural Science. And I don't think I've ever heard of that before. Hmm. I'm pretty sure it's in China When I Googled it, the only thing I could find was a museum, and there were a couple pictures that had some Chinese characters in it to go with it. So I think it's one of the tons of Chinese (laughs) dinosaur museums that I'm not really familiar with. But it sounds awesome, and obviously it's pretty cool that now we've got a longest sauropod with some pretty good evidence behind it.
1: We started out this episode... Heavy on theropods, but then we ended on a lot of sauropods. (laughs)
0: Yep. Theropods that were shrinking in size. And now we ended in (laughs) sauropods growing in size. (laughs) (laughs) And on a high note.
1: Yep. Literally. Mm -hmm. And that neck could go real high. It could. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of Vinodino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join our growing community on Patreon. If you join at that Spinosaurus level, then you can get our super sweet art for the year. That's at patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again, and until next time.